it's just is something that's so incredibly rewarding that 95% of people surveyed who donated kidneys would do it again if we could. So why wait until after we're dead to have that great feeling, right? I mean, let's have that great feeling right now. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My returning guest today is Aaron Strauss, now of Open Labs. He was formerly head of the Analyst Institute and is a longtime champion of the use of evidence to inform political campaigning. Aaron and I talked about his work in politics for a bit, and he's always worth hearing from there. Halfway through the interview, Aaron was then joined by Elaine Perlman, founder of Waitlist Zero, who is unrelated to me, but works with Aaron on another cause he is extremely dedicated to. Waitlist Zero advocates for living kidney donation, and both Aaron and Elaine have literally given of themselves in this manner, and she is currently working on federal legislation to make this easier. So, if you're interested in using evidence to choose how to apply your time in politics for the most impact, or in saving people's lives with your extra kidney, you should listen. So, first my sponsor, then my interview with Aaron Strauss of Open Labs and Elaine Perlman of Waitlist Zero. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Aaron, it has been a bit since you were on the show, but you were actually one of my early guests. Could you catch me up on what you've been up to for the last couple of years? Absolutely. Well, it's great to be back. Big fan of the show. And I have continued to work to elect Democrats. And I would say I do this mostly on the independent expenditure side. So that means if I'm a modern day rumble stiltskin trying to turn dollars into votes, in essence, instead of straw into gold, which one is more valuable these days? Is votes or gold? Hard to say. Yeah, I guess it depends on how many votes and how much right. gold. Exactly. But I, but if I could buy the last 70,000 that I need to win the next presidential, I'd put a reasonable amount of gold into that. Exactly. Exactly. And that's certainly what well, we hope that people of means who care about the future of this country, future of democracy, do. And I want to make sure that people are spending that money efficiently. My day job is at Open Labs, which coordinates the largest super PAC on the Democratic side, presidential super PAC, I should say. And I really love working to reelect Joe Biden day in and day out. But it's not just the standard, let's dominate the paid media competitive and make sure our message is out there more than theirs. 
which we definitely need to do and make sure it's a great message. I also spend time thinking of what people, listeners who say, well, what can I do in my daily life to net votes? What's the most efficient way they can help Joe Biden? That's also what I spend some of my time doing. Really love that aspect as well. And that is a continuation of your whole career in the intersection of analytics and and politics. I like to think of it as evidence in politics more than data and analytics, because that's really what we're getting at the end of the day. What do we know and how do we know it in terms of netting Democrats more votes and winning more elections? What's the founding story for Open Labs and what was your role in that? Very little, because it was founded by Chauncey McLean, John Fromwitz, and Gaurav Shiroli. They came out of the Obama reelect and did their own media company and started being creative about ads and making ads that people thought were compelling and well-tested, basically. Just applying the rigor that we like to see in all aspects of politics to television ads. What sort of things can you do to help reelect Joe Biden and the rest of the team? And how do you know what works better than other things? That's such a a great two-part question. I would say, let's take the second part real quick, which is we can apply science and rigor. Often folks that say the Analyst Institute use randomized controlled trials to randomly put voters into a treatment group and control group to know that what they're really measuring is the causal impact of a program. But we can also generally apply the principles of logic and spreadsheet math to figure out, okay, if there's a certain cost per conversation and we have a sense of how valuable that conversation is, how efficient is that approach to netting votes? And that's the sort of the boring science side of things. But to answer the larger question of, well, how can we help elect Joe Biden? In our era of low ticket splitting and high turnout, what seems to be very helpful is voter registration. And the more we can emphasize registering voters of color, or if you have partisan dollars, registering Democrats to fill up those voter rolls with as many people as possible who come 2024 are very likely to vote, that does a great service to saving our democracy and reelecting Joe Biden. Here's a fun fact for you. The voter turnout rate amongst all eligible adults in 2020 was the highest turnout in this country since the adoption of the secret ballot. That is surprising to me. Exactly. So that's why it's a fun fact. And it's <laughs> people have to get used to being in this era of high turnout that we live in post-2016, post the Trump presidency. When was the secret ballot adopted? Around the turn of going from the late 1800s to the early 1900s. So since then, which is really all of modern professional campaigning history, post-William McKinley, and we really had the most people out Yeah, highest percentage. Absolutely. Not just raw numbers. I mean, population's growing. So the raw number is easy. All it really takes is someone who's a threat to democracy to generate that kind of turnout. Exactly. We are all indebted to Michael McDonald, a professor of political science who has tracked these numbers over time. And you can do your own research and Google it and see the stat yourself. I remember that he had a lot of expertise in things like redistricting. Yes. He's also testified in those uh, court cases as well. That's right. So- 
is a central part of your work trying to figure out how people on our side ought to be employed in their volunteer activities? Yes. Central may be too strong of a word, but it's something I think about all the time. And the idea is that, to give an example, lots of people are passionate on our side and really want to see Joe Biden reelected and Donald Trump stopped. And of course, they want to do stuff now or in a few months when it, the weather turns nicer in the spring and say March, they want to go knock on doors. However, the evidence tells us that the effect of knocking on a door and talking to someone, because it's the conversation, not the door knock that matters. Quick aside, pet peeve. I do not like when people count door knocks rather than conversations. That conversation, the impact of it is probably not going to last all the way until November. People probably won't remember it that long. So what can we do with our passionate supporters who want to have conversations at people's doors in March of 2024 that will last until November of 2024? Well, a few things. One is that listeners or listeners' friends can sign up to be block captains of their area, and they could talk to the same people over and over again over the course of 2024, develop a relationship with your neighbors, some neighbors you probably already know and some neighbors you don't, but get to know them ones that you don't. And this has been an on-again, off-again approach in democratic politics, having precinct captains. But I personally think that a precinct, which generally has a thousand people, is too big for one captain to manage. We have, as humans, what's called a Dunbar number of like the number of relationships we can hold at one time. And it varies greatly. The average is about 150. My wife's Dunbar number is probably around 400. Mine is probably more like 75. So that's the yin and yang of our marriage. But even for folks like my wife, who are amazing extroverts and know so many people, trying to manage and have relationships with everyone in an entire thousand person, thousand voter precinct is too much. And so we should go down to block captains. There are good projects developing in various states. The foremost in my mind is Lana Hansen in Texas Blue Action. I think you've had her on Great Battlefield. And she's running block captains in the Lone Star State. Also, Ben Wickler in Wisconsin does captains. I think Michigan has a burgeoning program on this as they're trying to go from precincts and get down to block captains. So I hope to see that flourish throughout the country. So no matter what state you're in, but especially in the most important states, folks can talk to the same people starting in March 2024, but all the way through the election and develop that trusted relationship and really make sure, uh, adopt a voter and make sure they vote and cast a ballot for Joe Biden come election day. Of course, if that's not possible, if that system's not set up, some things you can do at someone's door is have them sign a pledge card right? Have their own reason. They say they're going to vote for Joe Biden or vote against Donald Trump because X and they sign it and you keep it and then you send it back to them in October when you can remind them of it and then you can have a lasting effect of that initial early spring conversation. And if you get to someone's house and someone's not registered to vote, that's a great time to register them. That's a fantastic way to have a lasting impact now by registering more people to vote. So on the topic of relational voter contact, Another bright spot in relational is the Biden campaign itself. The biggest field program that will be in 2024 is, has started a relational program in two states, Wisconsin and Arizona. 
And while it's just the start of their program, so far, from what I hear, it's going very well. And I look forward to it succeeding and really complementing the more traditional knock on strangers doors field program that we're more aware of. And if you volunteered on campaigns, you've probably had an experience with. Uh, Can I ask you one question about that? They had some relational program last time. Do you know if they build on the databases that existed or do they start from scratch on this? Well, I'm not totally sure about the Biden campaign. Presumably they can build on last time. It's the same entity. I know that the folks who do this for a living, relentless and empower, absolutely love doing the same state a second time because they have a set of mobilizers or persuaders ready to go who have done the program, loved the program, appreciated getting paid for talking to their friends, and they can just tap into that resource again and lower their recruitment costs. So that's the stuff that's churning in my brain each and every day as I hear the next parade of horrible that Trump has done or has promised to do when he's president, thinking about how we can use our efforts and our passion today to net more votes in November 2024. The first thing you led with was the efficacy of registration. When you look at the ecosystem of enterprises that are working on registration, campaigns, there's voter registration technology firms, there's there's a whole lot of people working both in a nonpartisan fashion and in a partisan fashion. How do you see that effort going? What do you like out there? What do you think are possible gaps? Here's a, a general principle that I like. If you are interrupting someone's day non-politically and try to ask them to vote, you're more likely to net voters. In essence, get someone to register who wouldn't otherwise have absent your intervention. That's like sort of door number one, interrupt somebody's day. That's great. Door number two is put up display ads online that say, register to vote here, click here. The people who click those ads are very likely to register otherwise. The sort of canonical example of this is actually Google search terms. So you can, as some sort of organization out there, or even an individual can put some ads on Google search for somebody who's registering to vote in a battleground state, say Michigan, and I'm gonna say, okay, register to vote in Michigan, here's my ad, I'm gonna send that link and I'm gonna track how many people I register. And you'll say, oh my God, I'm registering people at only $1.50 per registration. But the problem is all those people were already searching for register to vote in Michigan. They would have, if not for your ad, they would have just landed on the Secretary of State's website and they would have registered themselves. So you have to think about these net impacts. And so I really like organizations who are thinking about, for instance, sweepstakes for some non-political celebrity or musician where the way to enter into the sweepstake is to check your registration status. It would be illegal to say that you have to register to vote or to give somebody some monetary value to register to vote. But you can ask folks to check their registration and that is their ticket or to a concert or an entry into a sweepstakes. And that non-political carrot is, is great. It's what cr- creates net registrations and produces efficient use of dollars. That's what spins the money into votes. That sounds like it isn't a partisan technique unless there's something that is targeting those ads. How do people manage that? Or are you just happy with anyone being registered? 
Well, I do want to see a more representative democracy overall. I think there are ways that we want to see certain demographics who are underrepresented, people of color, youth, to have their populations equally represented on the voter file, which they are not right now. It would be a great thing if they were. And also, when you talk to someone, say on the street, site-based voter registration, where you have a staffer or a volunteer go to a heavily foot-trafficked location in town, and they stop people on the street, similar to the digital uh, display ad example. You don't want to wait people to come to your table. Don't do tabling. That's no good. You stop people on the street. You say, hi, how's it going? Would you like to register to vote? There are experts who will, can explain that much better than I can. You could also say, hi, how are you doing? Would you like to help me and protect our reproductive rights in Ohio, for instance, where we just won that fantastic ballot initiative to enshrine those rights in the state constitution. And there we're doing good for the nation and making sure that our reproductive rights are in fact protected while registering voters. So that's another way you can do it. You could also be with the right kind of money to stay on the right side of the law with political dollars. You can register with partisan approach. You can wear Biden shirts and stand on that street corner and register people to stop Trump, or you could put stop Trump on the shirt instead of Biden, which may get more people to stop by at the moment. Those are the sorts of approaches you can do, and different organizations do different things depending on their tax status and their lane. When you are talking about organizations that are doing things like sweepstakes or attaching it to concerts or, you know, doing these things that you say would create the most net registered new voters, who do you have in mind? Who are some of the examples of people or organizations doing that? So Headcount is the first person that comes to mind for musicians, Civic Nation and hometown for sweepstakes and celebrities. You know, they've both worked in that space. I think the other organizations who are doing good work on voter registration include Vote Forward, who are doing handwritten letters. So you can volunteer to handwrite letters to your uh, fellow citizens of states and register them to vote. And not surprisingly, people are much more likely to open a hand-addressed letter, get very few of those in the mail these days, then you are to open a pre-sorted, printed, your name on the front with your address with that barcode that looks like every other piece of junk mail that you would get. So that is a fantastic way for people to open the letter and then say, oh, and the letter says, please register to vote. And there's some handwritten messaging there and they will. And that's an excellent volunteer driven approach. And so actually can be quite cost efficient because it's directed by the volunteers who are lending their time and their passion to the project. One of the things that I can't help but think about whenever I talk to someone like you about these tactical changes that make a difference on the margin is how much potentially strategic changes, big things that the president could do to change policy or to communicate differently might swamp the effects of smaller stuff. Do you have any way of testing big ideas or big strategic things, or does that come up at all in your work? There's a question that a lot of people have, and thanks for asking it. It's difficult. The hard part is not necessarily the measurement. 
but it's the ability to reliably shift the entire conversation in the nation. Very few organizations, the number is probably very close to zero, if not zero, can do that. Now, the president of the United States can, and potentially, maybe- And and potentially the ex-president of the United States who he's running against. Right. So the candidates, I mean, the number one most important asset to any campaign is the candidate. I think that it is a little bit difficult to measure with the similar rigor the effect of folks might call them earned media or just the candidate's presence or the topic that they want to emphasize. But we have pre and post polling. There are ways we can get at a sense of the magnitude of that effect. It is 100% larger than any of the voter by voter approaches that are done by organizations working so hard to get that last vote to pull us over the edge in the closest races. But the only person who can do that is the candidate. So everybody who else wants to help should be directing their efforts in the best, most efficient way possible to net votes. And so it's a sort of, you need both. And it, you should never, if you're working on a campaign, especially if you're in a position to manage the candidate and suggest the candidate, say, talk about popular things, as say Matt Iglesias writes about a lot, I think very trenchantly, that is your best asset. The candidate is the number one asset of any campaign. That candidate can make the biggest difference, can shift the ground to a degree that is magnitudes higher than these individual if we compare it to the weather, raindrops, like the weather pattern versus the raindrops. And it's absolutely true. And I think that we have enough circumstantial evidence to know that. It's just the fact that there's only one candidate on each side at a time. So on the topic of candidates making a big difference. And another thing you can do if you have access to the candidates is a really high value, but have to pick your spots opportunity are earned media stunts. Let me give you an example of Larry Kissel, who was running against an incumbent in a tough district in North Carolina in 2006. And their gas prices, as they are today, were a topic of conversation. And they were over $3. But he said, well, when my Republican incumbent opponent first came into office, it was only $1.22 a gallon. So for an afternoon in one gas station in his district, he had the price be $1.22 a gallon, and he paid the difference from the actual price. And this got a ton of press. In fact, when I Googled and found the HuffPo article, the line is, today, the North Carolina mass media is filled with story after story after story about Larry Kissel meeting voters at a gas station, right? You can generate so much interest and attention, especially needed if you're the challenger, when you have the ability to run the campaign with the candidate as the central figure and really show the voters the candidate's core value, their background, that the candidate stands with them in a way that can break through that doesn't really happen 
on the super PAC side, where it's more about the spreadsheet, a little bit of the art in the ads of how do I take this money and convert it into as many net votes as possible. That makes sense. That said, one thing where I think we could do better that could either be on the candidate or the super PAC side is oppo research. I feel like too often oppo research consists of someone sitting in front of a computer and running Google searches and database searches. And to be honest, I'm not an expert here, so I feel a little bit of a hesitation of stepping outside my lane, but not so much so that I'm not going to talk about it. I am going to raise this point on a public podcast and say, maybe we could be doing this better. Because what I feel too often happens is we don't do the on-the-ground sort of gumshoe work of researching our Republican opponents. And the easiest, most scalable way that comes to mind is visiting the house at the address that the Republican is registered to vote at. If someone had done that in the case of George Santos, they would have found that he didn't live there. And that's not a one-off exception. The Speaker of the Tennessee State House just got in trouble for a very similar thing. Now, his district probably wasn't competitive, but it just shows you over time, I've seen this happen over and over again, where politicians or candidates especially don't live in the house that they're registered to vote at, oftentimes because of district lines. And this can lead to uncovering additional malfeasance or give you a whiff that they are not an honest person. And even in our era of low ticket splitting, of everyone voting the party line to a first approximation, what I see when I run the regressions after election day is that candidates who have been hit with a scandal absolutely do a few points worse. Now, it was probably bigger effects, probably happened 10, 20 years ago when there was more ticket splitting, but you absolutely still see the effects of this. Swing voters do care about electing who they perceive to be honest politicians, people who are at least not uh, stained by the whiff or reality of a scandal. And I think the more we can get people on the ground and actually visit their candidates' homes, supposed homes, their friends, their neighbors, talk and find out more about the people who are just running for Congress or state legislature for the first time that we know so little about, the better off we'll do to avoid the next George Santos and we'll win more races. If you looked at almost any sentence that, or any statement that Santos made, you probably would have uncovered something that would have made him lose if you pursued it in the campaign. Yeah. There was a local paper that did. I saw that and no one picked it up for some reason. I think it wasn't, it wasn't so concrete, yeah. right? Yeah. I feel like it was easier to say he just, he doesn't live there, but maybe that's wishful thinking. Maybe that would have just been in the same story that didn't go anywhere. I don't know. When you look at what we're doing as progressives to try to win, what bugs you most about the current processes and procedures and politics in terms of like what mistakes we're making with money and time? I actually have very few annoyances these days. I think that thanks to the people who came before me, like Mike Podhorzer, Todd Rogers, and Laura Quinn, who 
after we lost in 2004, said, hmm, maybe we should start groups who consider and grow the pile of evidence that is available to us. I think that has worked out really well. And as you can see these past few years, we're pretty darn good at winning elections. Democrats have won a vast majority of presidential elections when you just look at the popular vote in just terms of winning more votes. The Electoral College has been a pain in the butt, of course. Turns out Democrats are actually pretty good at winning elections. I think in any human endeavor, status quo bias is going to be an issue. And yeah, I would love if people turn on the dime once the evidence shows that the status quo is not quite the most efficient way, but can't really blame them. We get used to things, we get used to relying on various tactics, and it's difficult to change people's minds. But I have been very heartened by the entire progressive community for embracing evidence, for always trying new things. And when the received wisdom is actually one of the best things to do, to sticking with it and doubling down on it. Because with voter registration, I had my mind in, in frame in sort of innovations, but one of the best ways to register voters uh, is standing on a street corner in a high traffic area that, that everybody votes is a fantastic organization who I neglected to mention, does really well, cycle after cycle, year after year, and has proven to be a very effective way to register voters. And that was not something that the randomistas or analytics folks cooked up after the evidence revolution. No, that had been around forever, but it turns out that's totally the right way to do it. So absolutely, let's keep doing it. It's the right way to do it short of uh, having a national automatic registration or same-day re registration innovation that would obviate the whole problem. I, I would love for us to have uh, uh, national automatic voter registration. That'd be lovely. We could all be like North Dakota and not have registration at all. You just have an ID or someone vouches for you, which I think at least a few years ago was the law in North Dakota, and then you were allowed to vote. That was pretty cool. That was nice. A sort of related question to my last one. What do you think is the biggest misconception that people have about how our system works? The biggest misconception is that the DNC controls everything. That there is this singular entity called the Democrats or the Republicans that can just choose to pick a message of the day and execute. And that's what everybody will be saying at the same time. That's just not how it works. We're much more democratized than that, small d. And... That's how it should be. As long as the lines of communication are open and we're sharing what is helpful and not at certain times, there's a, a place for advocacy and moving the Overton window and pressuring our public officials. And there's election time when we need to be more of an open tent and allow anyone who wants to vote for our Democratic nominee inside that tent and be respectful of their views. And those are two different operations. They happen at different times. And it makes sense that both types of organizations are very welcome in the Democratic Party. The DNC does not control all those folks. I remember talking to someone in the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016 who told me in August that they were concerned that none of the ads that they were running against Trump were moving anybody. And they were very concerned at the time that that augured badly for the fall. They may have been an outlier. I'm not sure. 
when you are looking at ads now, are there ads that do work against Trump? I think more just moving out of the space than just ads, what we need to focus on and what our message needs to focus on is the good thing that President Biden is doing for everyday Americans. And we have the economy that's the envy of the world, but I do not expect voters to be intimately aware of OECD graphs of GDP. So we need to emphasize that Joe Biden capped insulin at $35, both for seniors and got Eli Lilly to do it for everyone. Donald Trump promised to do that, couldn't get it done. Joe Biden passed infrastructure, rebuilding our roads and bridges, something again, Donald Trump promised to do, couldn't get it done. Joe Biden has lowered healthcare costs for millions of Americans, affecting in a positive way their everyday lives. Donald Trump is on record wanting to take away that healthcare and kill protections for pre-existing conditions. Those are the things that people need to be reminded of. And that's not even to mention the biggest issue, probably 2024 abortion in the fact that Trump is on record wanting a national abortion ban. Those things that affect people's day-to-day lives, those are in the messages and the ads that are very likely going to be effective in 2024. Probably a contrast between Trump and Biden. Aaron, when we discussed bringing you back on the show, one of the things we talked about is another significant thing that you've involved yourself in at the cost of one of your organs is how seriously you take it, which is the donation of kidneys to unspecified people just out of the goodness of your heart. When we spoke about that, you said you'd, you would really like to have that be a part of your interview on the podcast. And you suggested also including another advocate and leader in that effort, whose name is Elaine Perlman. I like the last name Perlman, even though she spells it somewhat erroneously compared to mine. How did this become something important to you? How did this come across your mind as something to do? And what's the connection to Elaine? Yes, thanks, Nathaniel. I really hope that listeners of this podcast can help not just reelect Joe Biden, but save people's lives out there. And I read an article by Dylan Matthews on Vox.com back in 2018, I probably want to say it was 2017, where he talked about his own living donation of one of his two kidneys. If you had asked me before I read that article, how many kidneys I had in my body, I would have been very uncertain as to the answer. Maybe I could have landed on the number two. But through reading that article, I learned that most people have two kidneys, a lot of people have two healthy kidneys, and that you only need one. And basically committed right then and there in front of my computer that I would donate one of my kidneys to save a stranger's life, hopefully start a chain and encourage more people so we could save more lives. I said, well, great time to do that would be right after the 2020 election and we've gotten rid of Donald Trump. Turns out that towards the end of 2020 was not a great time for elective surgery in this country. So I said, okay, after 2022, and we do well in the midterms. Well, we did well in the midterms. I started the day after election day, 2022, I went into the hospital for a battery of tests to make sure I did in fact have two healthy kidneys and it all checked out. And throughout that process, I was connected with a mentor, Elaine, and she helped me understand exactly 
what would happen. And on February 14th, Valentine's Day, 2023, I donated my left kidney. And so thank you, Elaine, for stepping through the process. Why don't you introduce yourself? So I am so happy to be here. I am also very proud to share a last name with the podcast host. I donated my kidney to a stranger three years ago, and I was inspired by my son who donated six months before I did at age 19. And he was inspired by Dylan Matthews from Vox. And Dylan was inspired by my current supervisor, Josh Morrison, who founded Weightless Zero. I am now the director of Weightless Zero. We worked hard last year to pass a bill in New York State to make it the most generous state in the country for living donors in terms of reimbursing their costs on lost wages. And I've now turned my attention to the federal government. I'm trying to pass two different bills, both of which are aimed at dissolving barriers to living kidney donation. One is called the HEROES Act and the other is called the HOLD Act. And thank you for having me. I remember thinking when this subject came up many years ago, that if my brother needed a kidney, I would certainly be willing to donate to him, even though it seemed very scary, or my sister, you know, or, or, or my wife, or someone very close, one of my children. The notion of doing it without knowing the person is more hard for me to put my mind around, even though obviously everybody's valuable out there. How do you guys think about that aspect of things? Well, I think it was more the fact that I didn't know personally anyone who needed it and I didn't need both. I was reading Scott Alexander who wrote about this recently. I hope I'm giving credit to the right person there. Someone else said, make a lot of uncertain decisions in our lives. And it's nice after this process to know, absolutely, that was the right thing to do. I saved at least one person's life, added years to at least one person's life, and all the joy that they will get out of that. This is the right decision for me. I can be certain of it. I can be proud of it. And it I mean, honestly, the recovery, especially for someone who works remotely in front of a computer, was so easy. I'm, I'm glad to be privileged in that position to have that type of job. And I would have absolutely given it my kidney to my brother too, but he he's good. He didn't need it. So I figured it should go to someone. Elaine? Yeah. I mean, had I known someone, they would have been able to get my old kidney for sure. But because I don't know anyone and it's something that's so life-changing for someone else, returning them to a sense of vitality and good health and longevity. There's so many benefits for the recipient. And there, and the only change for me is I can no longer take ibuprofen, like big deal, right? So I get this waterfall of dopamine every time I think about this decision I've made, which I now think about only when I see my scars, I remember that I did it because it really has impacted my life in no way at all, other than the fact of the, the rewarding feeling I have. My son also, um, no regrets, completely happy that he did it. And my husband likes to joke around that we get votes according to how many kidneys we have in the house. He has too. But yeah, it, it's just is something that's so incredibly rewarding that 95% of people surveyed who've donated kidneys would do it again if we could. So wh why wait until after we're dead to have that great feeling, right? I mean, let's have that great feeling right now. I guess I, I want to get you to address some other qualms I might have. One of them is, okay, I do this amazing thing and give up a kidney for somebody else. And then my brother needs it. 
then he's lost the relative who maybe is best suited to helping him. In our current world, if you're connected with the National Kidney Registry, as both Aaron and I were, we donated to strangers. So we put one kidney into the system and we could, uh, before our surgery, select five people who, if they, you know, loved ones, if they someday need a kidney, would be prioritized for a living kidney. Now, a living kidney lasts twice as long as a deceased donor kidney. So they're covered. Their kidney protection exceeds what they would have if I had never donated. I'm also prioritized for a living kidney, but you have to be in such top health in order to donate that of the 8,000 kidney donations that the NKR has facilitated, zero living donors have so far needed to get a kidney out of that big batch. So it's unlikely I'll ever need one. It's unlikely my family members would ever need one, but I do have that peace of mind. Aaron, another thing that occurs to me is we took a walk not that long after you had had your surgery and and I think mostly accomplished the recovery. But we both know that in any operation, sometimes there is a problem. There are appreciable risks to doing major surgery like that. How did you think about that kind of risk as part of this decision? Honestly, tried not to. You don't really want to think about the tiny, minuscule risk that it would lead to a major complication. For my wife, it was probably different. Watching you go through this? Absolutely. And also, you know, who takes care of that kid, the kids for the week that you're in real recovery. But uh, she asked me a while ago what I wanted for my 40th birthday present. And this was the present to allow me to donate a kidney. And I knew this would be no easy ask for her not just the worry, but also she would have to do more of the lift for that week when I really couldn't do my parental responsibilities very much. Well, I would imagine that would be the least of it because there's also the emotional situation that any spouse has if their loved one goes under the knife, as it were, it is not a minor thing to be concerned about at the time and to worry about as you recover. Yes, 100%. It's absolutely true. And I, I don't want to minimize that. It, it was a worry. And I really thank Jackie for being a great partner during this because it was absolutely a sacrifice for her. And she did have to sit by and wait until I was out of surgery and worry during that time, 100%. Elaine, you've talked a little bit about the state of the, let's call it a movement, to make this happen, to make sure that people are put in a position where it doesn't put them behind financially, at the very least, by being generous in this fashion. How frequently is this currently happening? How frequently do we want it to happen? And what's the state of trying to make change in this arena of kidney donation? So in terms of living kidney donation, we have about 6,000 directed donations a year and about 92,000 people on the wait list, hoping that someone is going to come forward to donate to them. So those would be people who don't have loved ones who medically qualify to donate. And that's a big issue for middle and low income people. Oftentimes their social circles are filled with people who want to give, but are not healthy enough to give. And they've estimated that around one third of Americans are healthy enough to donate. We have about 300 people a year who are giving kidneys to strangers. And one of my bills, the HEROES Act, the helping end the renal organ shortage, would provide anyone who's willing to put a kidney into the system without getting a kidney out of the system, 
So people who give to strangers, people are willing to give to people on the wait list. We would like to provide them with a $100,000 refundable tax credit because 300 is not enough to take care of those 92,000 people. We're hoping that we could ramp up the number of transplants and incentivize people to become donors for strangers. Do we run a risk there of people going to try to be a donor like you might have been gone to a sperm bank or given blood for money? Do we run the risk that, I don't know, that someone might stretch the, might be doing it for the wrong reasons? So right now we have 13 people dying a day directly from the wait list. We have far more people dying from the kidney shortage. It's estimated up to 110 people died due to the kidney shortage. And so most of those people are low-income people. Um, they are people who live in rural areas. They are people who, who are low-wage earners, who ha- do not have ho- healthy social networks. So the low-income people are the people who are most likely to die due to the kidney shortage. Wealthy people find their way. They have healthier social networks. They're much more likely to be transplanted. And in terms of incentivizing people, or some people may say, ah, this opens us up to coercion or exploitation of vulnerable people. The way we'd like to structure it is over 10 years. So $10,000 a year for 10 years and actually saves the American taxpayer hundreds of thousands of dollars for each transplant. So it's a highly cost saving thing. What we think is that it's immoral and unethical to deny people a living kidney. That It's like denying someone life-saving medication. We think that by incentivizing donors to give to those people who are languishing on the wait list will actually help the lowest income people the most. So that's where we stand. Is there any other category of organ that is similar to kidney in that uh, we have redundancy and we ought to be incentivizing people to do similarly? So we can donate a portion of our liver uh, for a pediatric patient, 20% of the liver, for an adult, 40 to 60% of the liver. The issue with liver donation is that we we do not have enough um, living livers. Um, We do need more people to step forward, but it's not as cost-saving as kidney transplant because dialysis costs $100,000 a year. So we essentially want to incentivize people by paying them the cost of dialysis for one year. We wouldn't have that level of cost saving with liver donation. So the plan is let's pass compensation for kidney donors. And then after that, perhaps we may open up the gates to to do it also for living liver donors. I'm going to ask you one question that may not be very broadly applicable, but it's about a friend of mine, a former uh, soccer teammate who I'm very fond of who's from Nigeria and he had his kidneys damaged by some kind of misprescription of a drug that he took for a long time. And he has been in dialysis three days a week for a long time. And if you look at the statistics, he's never discussed this with me, but if you look at the statistics, if you're on dialysis for a while, you're in serious trouble. You've talked about being healthy enough to donate how healthy do you have to be to receive? Because I think that one of the bars he has to cross is, is he healthy enough? What do you know about that? Yeah, you do need to go through an extensive evaluation in order to, for it to be determined if you are healthy enough. And tragically, half of the people on dialysis will die within the first five years. Dialysis is very taxing on the heart and other organs. And it is apparently one of the worst things that a person can go through. It's 12 hours a week. 
It's a brutal regime. Yep. It is. And I've known people who, you know, they took a diet pill and their kidneys were ruined or chemotherapy ruined their kidneys. There are a number of reasons. Kidneys are very vulnerable to damage. And unfortunately, by the year 2030, 1 million Americans will be in kidney failure. So we're desperate for kidney donors. And that's the reason why we want to incentivize um, them. It sounds like it would have been way better for him if we had something in place like Weightless Zero and he could have gone quickly to a repairing transplant rather than sitting on dialysis over the years and deteriorating in his health. Precisely. The longer a person's on dialysis, the less likely they're going to be qualified for a transplant. So if we could get people what they call preemptively transplanted prior to dialysis, their kidney will last longer They'll be able to ha- return to good health quicker. It's it's a win for everyone. You refer to this legislation that you're trying to push nationally, two different bills. What's the state of play on them? What are the hopes or hurdles in getting that passed? So the first bill is called the HOLD Act, the Honor Our Living Donors Act. And that is to fix something that seems like everybody wants it to be fixed. We have a low-income donor reimbursement program called the National Living Donor Assistance Center. And I'm all for making it a cost-neutral experience for low-income donors because they estimate that donation, though medical expenses are covered, cost 10% of a person's annual salary. So more than a month's salary is spent on donating. Now, this makes no sense whatsoever because donation is so very cost-saving for the taxpayer. So the government has said, hey, we'll pay up to $6,000 of lost wages and out-of-pocket costs for low-income donors. Both donor and recipient, however, need to make less than $51,000 as an individual. And the the HOLD Act is simply saying, please only look at the donor's income. There's no reason to look at the recipient's income. I've known people who have removed themselves from the donation process because they were rejected by this program for reimbursement. Their income was low enough, but their recipients made a little bit more than that threshold. And so they were disqualified. So nearly everyone I've spoken with thinks this is a good bill. It was recently introduced by Representative Obernolte from California, who is a Republican on the Energy and Commerce Health Committee, and by Representative Del Bene from Washington State. She's a Democrat who is the chair of the Congressional Kidney Caucus. I'm looking now for Senate leads on the bill and also for co-sponsors in both houses. The second bill is the one to pay all non-directed donors. So people give kidneys to strangers, that $100,000 tax credit. That's the HEROES Act. And we are looking for leads in both houses on that one. It seems like a really ambitious effort to make what seems like generally a pretty sensible change. What are the deepest roots of this idea? Where does that come from in terms of getting this kind of legislation, pushing people to actually do this to not known recipients. Where does this get going originally? Do either of you know? Are you talking about the whole concept of giving kidneys to strangers? Where is this coming from? Yeah, yeah. 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 So until about 20 years ago, the medical community was completely opposed and assumed that anyone who would want to do such a thing had psychological problems. When they decided to um, really evaluate people, they found that we're actually quite sane. They may not want to do it, but that doesn't mean that we are crazy. So I think the idea is once you learn that you have what's essentially two life jackets, why hoard them? You know, share the wealth, save another person's life, use your body to make sure that someone else can have a great life with no damage to ourselves. So that's the idea, but was is there a person or 
time that's really associated with that beyond 20 years ago and it's a good idea? I know that there was several individuals who tried hard. There's a new movie that's just being released by a filmmaker named Penny Lane, and that is her real name. It's called Confessions of a Good Samaritan. It's excellent. It's being screened in New York City, I think, in a week or two. I'll be there. And that film gives a full historical accounting of this Good Samaritan donation. Project. Sounds cool. So, yeah. Aaron, your expertise being in the realm of politics and movements to make things like this happen, what do you think the prospects are and who are the best allies for making something like this come to fruition? Well, hopefully your podcast listeners, I think are probably well connected to people. I am a big fan of relational voter contact, which is friend to friend voter contact. And the same thing applies here. This is more of like relational organizing and giving the momentum to a movement and I am just struck by the medical community's continuing stance here. I will say the when I was doing the battery of tests, they asked me so many questions to make sure that I wasn't crazy or had some attributable problem that would be found in the DSM. Did they find any others that were unrelated? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It just, it's so interesting because it's not as if we object to firefighters getting paid when they put their lives on the line or members of the military or any other job that involves risking bodily harm in a noble way. And yet, I guess based on the only thing, part of the Hippocratic oath people know, do no harm, there's just this bring back to the other conversation, status quo bias in the medical community saying no way should anybody quote unquote harm themselves, even though there are no lasting effects, at least for Elaine and me, for this procedure. And I just hope that through the osmosis and word of mouth and talking to each other and posting on social media, we can just change people's minds slowly but surely into the perspective shift of donating a kidney is self-harm, which is what it was 20 or 30 years ago, to, oh, it's just like any other job where you're risking a little bit of your life to have a much larger chance of saving somebody else's. Well, I am frankly amazed that both of you chose to do this. I think it's highly admirable. It's something that I would have a bunch of hurdles myself to contemplate it. What should I have asked you guys about it that I haven't? Because I didn't, you know, I, I honestly, the first time that I heard about this was in that walk with you, Aaron. Elaine, you're probably the better person here. We've talked about the risk. Um, I think that the media presents it in a way that it seems like a death sentence. The New York State Assembly speaker wrote that in a survey, one third of New Yorkers thought that one out of 20 living kidney donors died as a result of their donation. It's more like three out of 10,000, but those numbers are from 2008. So NYU is working on printing an updated paper and it's gonna show, I think it's closer to one in 10,000. And if you don't have hypertension, it's even lower than that. So I think that it's safe. And that's the first thing my son said when he told me he's going to donate his kidney to a stranger when he was 17. I said, that sounds like the most dangerous thing I've ever heard of. He said, it's about as safe as you giving birth to me. And you did that. Right. And how could I respond? Right. So he was absolutely right. 
I also want to mention that if you do want to get involved in our movement to pay non-directed donors, those are the Good Samaritan donors that give their kidneys to strangers, feel free to check out coalitiontomodifynoda.org and sign our mission statement. We have monthly community meetings. We're ramping up our advocacy and we're really, really excited because we feel like once people understand how life-saving and cost-saving non-directed donation is and how it will help the poorest people in this country who are not being served right now due to the kidney shortage, I think that we're going to be successful. And my plan is to get this bill signed within this congressional session. So by December of 2024. One question that you didn't ask, which is important, Elaine can check me on this. Folks sometimes ask me, am I too old to donate? And I don't think it depends on the age of the person. It depends on the health of the kidney. So you're not too old to donate. There's um, an 82-year-old who just donated. My friend Tom donated at 74. You can be too unhealthy at 18, and you can be healthy enough at 82. So it really um, doesn't matter how old you are. That is not true for liver donation, but it is true for kidney. I love the way the Transplant Center does this full internal scrutiny to make sure that it's very unlikely we will ever develop a chronic disease or that we will need both kidneys. And so I like how careful they are. And that's the reason why we we tend to live longer than the general population, because we are in top health. And you can be in top health in your 80s and donate. It's pretty amazing. And I still play soccer twice a week after kidney donation. (laughs) And I have friends who have run 12 marathons this year just to show that um, kidney donation doesn't slow them down. It's especially gratifying is that this week I actually got my first contact from the recipient of my kidney. They sent me a letter in the mail and that intersects with some of my political work. You know, it's really good to get a hand addressed letter in the mail, make you stand up and open that and read it closely. What's so fascinating is that the state of Iowa has really been connected to my life and my wife's life in so many weird ways. We met in Iowa. Our favorite singer is Dar Williams. Our favorite song is called Iowa. The first house, which was a condo that we bought, was in the Iowa complex in DC. And my kidney ended up going to a guy in Iowa who actually was a high school teacher, which my wife Jackie used to be a high school teacher. It all seems sort of interconnected and meant to be and very cool. I started a small chain of two people. So it seems like from the letter, my recipient, his wife signed up to donate a kidney as well. That if someone would match and donate to him, his wife would then donate one of her kidneys to someone else. And so didn't just save one person's life, but two people's lives were saved through this transaction. And if anyone out there is listening and donates because they realize it's good to save someone's life, then you too can be part of this continuing chain. And I would love that. Well, I am honored that you both took the time to talk about this on my podcast. Is there anything else you want to say? I love this podcast (laughs) and it's great to be back. And thank you so much for having me on. It's always a pleasure. Nathaniel, I've known you more than basically anyone in politics. We met even before it was the 21st century, I think, potentially, or right around then. Let's see. You you wrote code for my first electronic filing 
software, if I remember correctly. But I knew you even before that, right? Because you, when you were at MIT as an undergrad. Well, that was how we got connected. I think in 1999, yeah. if listeners can even believe that these pages and pages of financial records had to be filed physically. I guess, so your software would prepare it to be printed. Yeah. I remember printing Hillary's Senate filing. We did a backup printing at my office while they were doing it just in case, because the stack of paper was so high that you didn't know if the printer would make it through. Yes. The Senate took a long time to come around on that, but even the House took till 1999. I'm very proud and take full credit for your illustrious career. Well, I'm really just happy to have gotten to know you all these years and your wonderful family. And it's just such a pleasure as always. Well, thank you, Aaron. Donate your kidney Donate to a stranger. A <laughs> <laughs> it's so awesome. I mean, I have endless joy from this decision. It's so rewarding. And everyone I know who's done it is just over the moon happy about it. So join the One Kidney Club. Amen. Awesome. That was Aaron. He is at Open Labs. And Elaine, she is at weightlesszero.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.